you, Mike. Thank you, musicians. Let's pray as we consider this text this morning. Our Father, we are so indebted to you. Apart from you, we have nothing. Um, Every good and perfect gift comes from you. And we thank you for the gift of your salvation in Christ, which we've sung about, we've uh, seen and felt, and um, hopefully is being drilled deeper into our hearts by your Spirit, so that we might live with uh, gratitude and joy in light of the salvation that we've received in Jesus. We pray that this uh, text here would speak volumes to us. We thank you that you use us, ordinary uh, sinners saved by grace, to um, do big things in this world. And I pray that that would be the case as as I seek to be faithful to your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So in... um, in 2010, there was a Midwest man who was kind of shopping around, and he stumbled upon, in kind of an antique-type store, a little golden egg. And he was a machinist, so he thought, well, the egg is fine, but I'm gonna, I need the gold. I want the gold so I can refashion it into something. I'll, I'll melt it and make something new out of it. And so he bought it. He bought it for $14,000. And then he realized he probably spent too much on it that it had been, the price had been miscalculated, wrongly appraised. So he decided to sell it, um, and, and, and he did sell it, and only to come, come to find out that it was mispriced, only it was not overvalued, it was severely undervalued. The, the golden egg was a rare Fabergé Easter egg that was made for the Russian royal family in the 19th century, and its value was $33 million dollars that little $14,000 egg. Another example, a man in the the Midwest was uh, looking for an antique shop. He saw a picture that he liked, and he said, he actually didn't like the picture. He liked the frame. He thought, I could use that frame. It cost $4. So he gets home, and he starts undoing the frame to get the picture out to put what he wants in there, and lo and behold, there is a print, an old print, of the Declaration of Independence. So that little $4 frame turns out the value of that was $8 million. You see, when the Declaration of Independence was written, they made prints so that they could, 500 of them to be exact, so that they could spread them throughout the colonies. And there was one in this frame. Now, these, and I could go on, right? There's all kinds of stories like this. This is why we, for a time, I don't know if it's so popular, the, uh, the antique roadshow was so popular. Finding treasures in ordinary places. That's, that, that's what's happening in those situations. And that's an intriguing moment. That's something that we find to be very interesting. And I think it's a really good picture of what John has been describing in his gospel. He's saying, look, a treasure has landed in an ordinary place, Palestine, Nazareth. In a sea of ordinary, there's something extraordinary there. And he's walking around and he's demonstrating his extraordinariness in the ordinary. Okay? And this is especially helpful for us in our own day. We live in what Os Guinness has described as an ABC 
era and anything but Christian era. Like, we're intrigued by all kinds of religions and ideas, but as long as it's not Christianity, like, we'll kind of entertain the possibility of it. But Christianity is just outdated. It has nothing to say to us. And so when we are sharing Jesus with the world at large, we might as well be pulling, like, a dusty old box out of the attic and explaining, like, this is Grandma's dish set from the 1950s. Like, that's kind of what they're thinking, are the people we're sharing with, as we're sharing Jesus, we're thinking, we've been there. We've done that. There's nothing, there's nothing for me in that dusty old box. But what if? What if what John has been saying is true? That contained within Christianity, which for us in the West is just a dusty old box, right? In the attic of Western civilization, contained within that is a treasure. Well, we're going to see this morning that it is a treasure hidden in us, and it's a treasure that's far greater than a golden Russian egg or far greater than an old print of the Declaration of Independence. It's Jesus. In fact, Jesus described his kingdom like a a treasure. He said it's like a treasure that a man found in in a field, an ordinary field, the kind of field you just walk past day after day. You don't even think, you don't even see the field. It's so ordinary. And a man found a treasure And it was so valuable that he went and he sold everything he had so that he could buy that ordinary field and get that treasure. Okay, that's how Jesus described it. And so what is the treasure? Well, fundamentally, at its very essence, the treasure is Jesus. Jesus, that's the goal. Get Jesus. Listen to how Paul puts it in Philippians. Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as garbage so that I may get Christ. Everything else compared to Christ is rubbish, garbage that goes in that dumpster out there. My M.O. is get Jesus. How can I get Jesus? And so if getting, the, the, if getting Jesus is the most important thing in, in life, there's a number of questions that flow out of that. How do we get Jesus? What happens when we get Jesus? Who gets Jesus? Our text is going to answer every one of those questions this morning. So how we get Jesus, this treasure. What happens when we get the treasure that is Jesus? And, and who gets the treasure? Okay, so the first question, how do we get the treasure? Now, um, just a, a bit of a recap. We're in John chapter 9, at the, and even more broadly, Jesus has been in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths. He's been making these grand, sweeping claims. And now he's, he's sort of, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Well, he's, he's showing us, like, I've got the power to back up my claims. Talk is cheap. I've got the power. And he heals this blind man. In the first seven verses of chapter 9, he heals a blind man. And he does something interesting in the process. He spits on the ground. He makes mud. The Greek word is palos, which is a word packed with meaning. The, the word palos in both Greek literature and Jewish literature regularly, regularly refers to the material out of which the world was made. Out of which people are made. Palos, clay. 
So as Jesus spits in the dirt and he makes mud and he puts it on the man's eyes, he's saying, hey, think back. I was, I was there. I was who formed man out of the dust of the earth. And man is severely flawed. And I, just as I'm putting mud on this man's eyes to remake his eyeballs, I have the power to transform all of you. And he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Jesus is showing through that miracle that he has recreative power. And so the man goes and he washes in the pool and he can see. And all of a sudden there's a ruckus in the neighborhood. What happened? And they take him to the, the Pharisees. And, you know, the Calvary kind of comes in. What happened? What's going on? And they start challenging the blind man. That's what we looked at last week. There's a clash between, uh, between the Pharisees and the blind man and the blind man's parents. And then we come down to this text. And now Jesus is rejoined with the blind man who he's not seen since he first put the mud on the man's eyes. And so Jesus says uh, to, the, to, the, to the blind man, do you believe in the Son of Man? That very question is answering our question of how we get Jesus. And the answer is, you believe in Jesus. That's the question. The question that Jesus poses this blind man, verse 35, do you believe in the Son of Man, is the most important question you can answer. Do you believe your life in this world hinges on how you answer that question? Your life in the world to come hinges on how you answer that question. Now, like I said, as a culture, we've kind of been there, done that with Christianity, especially in Oklahoma, let's face it. I mean, the work of churches in this state for the last 150 years has been, actually, it's been phenomenal in many ways that so many Oklahomans kind of get the basic points of the gospel and kind of are conversant in the gospel. You know, that's people I cut my hair. People I talk to, they just kind of know the basics. So we hear believe Jesus and we think, that seems a little arbitrary, doesn't it? Seems a little silly. I, I said not too long, a few weeks back, it's almost like wanting to settle a dispute with a fight. You know, well, okay, let's go on, let's just get sideways over this. You know, why not like a hot dog eating contest or a chess match or something? Not, why, why a fight? And so we hear, you mean my life in this world and the next depends on what I say to Jesus, whether I believe in Jesus? Why that? Why does it have to be that particular thing? It's exclusive. We don't like that. It boils down to the nature of the universe. Hang with me. It boils down to the way the universe has been built. You see, uh, John, in this gospel, John is dropping a bomb in antiquity in the, in the ancient world. Jesus was a bomb in the ancient world. The incarnation of Jesus was an incredible moment. Plato, so, so just real quick, the kind of the world that we were, that, that this gospel comes into, um, we were, uh, we, let's see, Plato, so let me, let, me, let me back up just a little bit. The world that Jesus is in is the Greek world. Plato played a huge role in that world. And he said, if you want to know what the world is really about, you don't look at anything out here. You look at the ideas, the forms, which exist out there somewhere. And the real task for a person, the way to find salvation for Plato he used the cave image. He said, it's like we're all kind of seeing reflections of these forms that are out in the spiritual world. 
And the real way to, get, to kind of get salvation and know is to step outside the cave, which the philosopher, the person who knows, does, to get outside the cave and then voila, the world, we, we get to see it, we know, we understand, and then we're saved, so to speak. Aristotle took a slightly different approach. Um, he, you, you remember the School of Athens, the painting with Plato and Aristotle, uh, Plato's pointing up, it's the ideas, the forms that are out there. Aristotle's got his hand down here. Nope, down here. This is where the focus is. And Aristotle was emphasizing kind of causal relationships between things, looking at the here and now. In our own day, the guy that's really influenced how we think about the world is Charles Darwin in his theory of evolution. He says, really what the world boils down to is a power struggle. It's the forces of nature duking it out and moving things forward through the process of evolution whether it's Plato, Aristotle, Darwin, in every one of those instances, it's us asking the questions. Whether it's these neutral, personless ideas, whether it's the things we see down here, or whether it's the process of, of evolution, it's us posing the questions. Because the view, and, and, and as a result, we're in the driver's seat. And it kind of gives us the illusion of control, that we can have kind of a mastery over the world. And if the world is inert matter, if there's nothing behind what we see, then that's probably an okay way to approach the world. But John's bomb, and, Je and what Jesus has been saying, the Gospel of John, the bomb is this. The nature of reality is not an idea, it's not causes, it's not an idea as Plato would say. It's not causes as Aristotle would say. It's not a power struggle as Darwin would say. It is created, sustained, maintained, and organized around a person. Jesus. He's the one holding it together. And that changes everything. Th think of it this way. And Leslie Newbegin has kind of, I'm indebted to him for this point. This pulpit right here that I'm just kind of leaning on. I can talk about this pulpit. It's wooden, it's got stain, it's how I can measure it. I can talk about this pulpit in a way that gives me quite a bit of control over the pulpit, don't I? I can kind of wobble it and say, look, this is how it teeters. It's an inert thing that I can talk about with control. Now, if I'm talking about a person, if you're talking about a person, let's say you're talking about a, a sibling, but the sibling's not there, and you're talking about it. You can talk about them, but there's more complexity to a person. You don't have the same amount of kind of control over the thing you're talking about with your friends, your sibling. Now, let's say this, though. Let's say that you're talking about your sibling with your friends, and all of a sudden, guess who walks in? Your sibling. Well, now, wait a second. Whoa, I, gotta, I better either stop talking, or I've got to change my, the mode of my talk to accommodate the fact that they're right there before me now. Behind what we see is a person, and the person, Jesus, has entered the room. That changes everything. We're not asking the questions anymore. He's asking the questions of us. Like, we're poking the world, and the world not only pokes back, but starts posing questions to us. And, and, and that's what Jesus is doing. And look at what he does. He asks the blind man, this is the question that Jesus is asking. This is the question that the one who's holding everything together is asking of us. Do you believe? And as I said, as I've said before, 
The reason this is such an important question, this belief in Jesus, is because whenever we're dealing with relationships, that's the question. Do you believe? Do you trust the person? Do you trust the real estate agent that's helping you find a house? Do you trust the businessman that you're about to enter into partnership with? Do you trust your spouse? Do you trust your children? Every human relationship boils down, personal relationship boils down to belief in that person. Trust. And so it is with creation, with God, the Creator. Because the world is held together by a personal, relational God. How we relate to that world and God depends upon whether we believe, whether we trust, whether we put ourselves in His care. And look, notice this, verse 35. Notice that Jesus is inviting the blind man to believe. He's not strong-arming him, right? He's not, he's not saying, I'm your creator. I proved it when I made the mud, so you better believe. Or he's not saying, look, hey, I, you couldn't see me if it wasn't for me. Would you believe in me, please? No, he's, he's, inviting, him. he's inviting him into relationship with him. C.S. Lewis says, that there are people that throughout their lives say, my will be done. My will. My will be done. My will be done. And in the end, you know what God says? Very well. You have what you want. Your will be done. And they are cast out of the presence of God, which is a frightening prospect because all the goodness that we see in this world is because of God's common grace to us. And all of a sudden, these the people that want their will are cast outside of the presence of God for all eternity. You know, you think your life gets bad after 80 years of bad decisions and kind of living in orbit around yourself? Multiply it by eternity. The, the, the mess that life without God creates. Okay? And then Lewis says, but there's other people that say, thy will be done. Thy will be done throughout their lives. And in the end, God says, very good. My will be done. And he scoops them up into his blessed kingdom. It's an invitation. God's not strong-arming us into his kingdom. He's inviting us, and that's what he does with this person here. Well, so that's the first question. Um, the second question is, what's the result of getting Jesus? And the answer is worship. Jesus asks the blind man, does he believe and look at what the blind man says in verse 36. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Now, remember, this blind man's not seen Jesus yet. Because remember when we last, they were last together? He had mud on his eyes and he was still blind because he had not gone to the pool of Siloam. So he leaves Jesus to wash. And from what we can tell, he doesn't see him again. And so he's like, who is this guy? So Jesus says, it's me, verse 37. I am the son of man. And the blind man believes, and look at what happens next in verse 38. He, he believes, and then he worships. And that's what happens when we get Jesus. We get Jesus by believing in Jesus, and the result of that belief is that we worship Jesus. And th this worship is fundamental to us at King's Cross. A pastor, Joseph Ryan, says that worship makes the gospel more beautiful than any of our idols. Continuing, he says, only, only transcendence can break the church 
out of the entropic tendency to reproduce the spirit of the age. That if the church wants to be unique in the world, worship makes it that way. Because what worship does is it lifts us up. It lifts us up out of the patterns of this world. And it gives us a taste of life in God's kingdom. And that's transforming. Without worship, there is no change. There is, well, I should say this. We all worship, and we're all being changed for better or worse by our worship. Psalm 115 highlights this, uh, verses 4 through 8. The psalmist says, and this is the passage important for us as a church. We, we've talked about this before. Their idols are silver and gold, the idols of these pagan neighbors. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. This is Psalm 115, verses 4 and eight, through 8. These idols, they have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. Noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. Feet, but they can't walk. The little idol, right? They're just lifeless. They don't make a sound in their throat. And then verse 8, the key. Those who make them, and we might add, worship them, become like them. So do all who trust in them. What the psalmist is saying is, look, you're going to worship something, and what you worship is what you become like. If you worship some aspect of creation, you will slowly, you will die a slow, sensory, numbing death. It will take away your ability to see things that maybe once you saw as beautiful and they become less beautiful, but you're still drawn to them. Your eyes kind of stop working in a sense or you stop feeling in a sense the things that you felt early on. And it has this deadening, numbing impact on our lives. So we worship creation. We're moved more and more into the image of an idol that's lifeless. It has all these parts, but they don't work. We, we worship the living God and all of a sudden we're made alive. And remember the context for all of this. It's blindness, right? What, what Jesus is saying in this whole passage is, look, there's one blind man here, right? Physically blind man. But this blind man that I've just healed, he's also spiritually blind, like all of you that are here. All of you are spiritually blind. Why? Well, because we worship other things besides God. And our senses are malfunctioning as a result. We're dying instead of growing into life. Jesus is saying, look, I can change it. I can turn things around. And worship is one of the means by which we're transformed into the image of Christ. And, and, and what, it, what happens over the course of our time is we begin to be able to say with David in the Psalms, there's one thing I have asked for, one thing I seek. There's only one thing. It's the top priority, and it's this that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Our hearts are infinite in their desires for things. And Augustine said, then they're not going to be satisfied by anything finite. You know, if you have like an endless uh, appetite, if you have a huge appetite, you're, you're not going to be entertained by hors d'oeuvres. You're going to want like all-you-can-eat buffet. That's going to satisfy you. 
if our heart's desire are infinite, there's no finite thing that's going to satisfy it. It's hors d'oeuvres. It's going to leave us empty. Only God can satisfy. Only the worship of triune God can bring, can, is, is the only place where our hearts can land. Maybe that's the best way to put it. It's the only place where our hearts can land. Let me, try, let me give you another example. Um, again, Joseph Ryan uh, has kind of made this point. You know, we, we all long for beauty. Um, a beautiful sunset attracts us. We talk about it. Beautiful mountains, beautiful romantic partner, beautiful music, concert, beautiful art, beautiful sports. Whatever it is, there's, beauty has a pull. And the human heart once is drawn to beauty. Now, all of those beautiful things in this world, they're just signposts. They're just signposts to the ultimate beauty, which is God, which is Christ, the triune God. Now, let's say that I'm driving down the highway, and we're, we're running out of gas. We're on the interstate. We're running out of gas. The light has come on, and now like, the mileage is like dipping. Ten miles still empty. Five miles still empty. Uh-oh. And then all of a sudden... I see a, a sign that says gas station, five miles left, gas station, two miles ahead. Now, would it be silly if I pulled over to the side of the road and stopped at that sign that said two miles ahead and got out and started like rejoicing and saying, we made it, we did it. The family gets out, we're hugging each other. We don't have to go run out. No, that's crazy. You don't do that because you, you're stopping at the sign, not the thing. And to the degree that we let our hearts land on any one of these little beautiful things in creation, we're stopping at the gas sign and not the actual station. It's only the beauty of God that satisfies our hearts. That's where our hearts must land. And it's transforming. So, how do we get Jesus? We get him by believing in him. And what happens when we get Jesus? We worship and live rather than worship towards death, which idolatry does. Now the final question, maybe the, one of the more important questions, uh, is, well, who gets Jesus? Who gets Jesus? And we see the answer in this dialogue with the Pharisees. Verse 40, the Pharisees are kind of listening in, and then they speak up. Are we also blind, they ask? And Jesus responds, if you were born blind, you would have no guilt. If you were born blind, you will have no guilt. And then verse 41, he continues. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Here's what he's saying. You are all spiritually blind. You don't think you're blind. You say, we see. And therein lies your problem, Jesus says. You don't need me. You don't want me because you think you've got it all figured out. You're leaning on your own understanding. You're not leaning on me. You have no need for me, and I'm not going to force myself on you. Very well, you, you, you take your path. If you would recognize your spiritual blindness and come to me in need, then there's salvation for you. It, here, here's his point. The biggest obstacle to getting Jesus is pride. And so who gets Jesus? It's the humble. It's those who recognize their need for Him. 
You know, Jesus said it like this. He said, the poor in spirit. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That there's a humility of spirit that is the, the only prereq to coming to Christ. And this is why the idea of belief is so difficult for us. You see, belief brings us up against our limits. And this is not, we don't like this, especially in kind of our own little individualistic, autonomous age. We want to be independent. And belief brings us up against our limits. Um, but it's, it's how we've been built. When we come into this world, instantly we're placed in a posture of trust upon a mom, dad, caregiver, whatever. We, we come into this world dependent, and to the degree that we think we're independent, it's, it's, it's an illusion. We need others, and so it is with our spiritual state, even more so with our spiritual state. You know, the trust fall, we've talked about this, the trust fall, right, when you fall back into the arms of people that are supposed to stop your fall, in, in the act of that, you are letting go of your control and putting and, and shifting your uh, trust from yourself to stop the fall. That's why you're just falling backwards to others. That's what trust is. It's, it's not doing the thing so that something else can do the thing for you. The, you guys are sitting on pews. And by the way, you've done a very good job of sitting in those pews this morning. And you're trusting the pew. Uh, you, you, pro you probably didn't even think about it. But I guarantee you, if 40% if if of the time you sat in a chair, it broke, you'd probably sit down a little carefully into that pew, make sure it's really going to hold. But because over time you've learned to trust chairs and pews, you sit down, you don't even think about it. But, but, you're, but at some level, you're trusting that pew to hold you up. And, what, and because you're trusting it, you can relax. Your muscles can just lean into the pew. That's what Jesus is saying. Lean into me. I'm doing the work. I'm doing the heavy lifting. I'm bearing your sins on a cross so that you can be forgiven, so that my mercy can come over you, and not just mercy, but that you can also be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And the only thing you have to do to get all of that, to get me, is to just rest, just to receive it. Just like you're... Derriere received the pew's support. That's it. And you'll be changed. You'll be changed as a result. This is, what, this is also what Jesus has been saying, right? You'll be transformed. He said, I'm the light of the world. Moreover, I'm going to make you my light. He said, I, I'm streams of living water I can give. Moreover, streams of living water will flow out of my people, the church. And so... As we get Jesus, we begin to kind of bleed Jesus, give Jesus to the world. And I want to say, I, I've been encouraged by this congregation. I, I believe we've been, um, I mean, I, I feel like I'm kind of a spectator to all this, and it's something to behold. But to see your loving care in action has been an encouragement. Um, I want to share just a couple things. I, I uh, received an email not long ago from one of you, and I asked for permission to share this. Um, and the email said this. I just wanted to say that I have never felt so much encouragement and love from a church. We have had so many folks from our congregation reach out and offer help and prayer. 
truly blessed to be a part of this community. In the last week, two, two of you came up to me and said something along those same lines. We're blown, we, don't, we don't even know many of these people. And they're bringing us meals and they're helping us in this way and helping us in that way. You guys, it, it, it is encouraging to me. I, I believe the Spirit of God is, at, is, is doing a work in our midst is because we're treasuring Jesus. We're, we're worshiping Jesus and we're becoming like Him. We're beginning to share the love of Christ with our community. Yesterday at Restore OKC, sharing the love of Christ, our youth and many of many families in this congregation. So, this is getting Jesus. It's not just something we stingily keep. It's something that kind of comes out of us once we get Jesus. His Spirit works out of us in deeds of love. So we've kind of pulled out the old dusty box out of the attic of Western civilization. And we've seen the claims of Christ. And my question for you as we close is, do you see the treasure that's there? Do you see the treasure of Christ? Do you see His claims? Can you say with Paul that I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ? In fact, everything in this world is garbage compared to getting Jesus. May that be um, our claim. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your grace to us that you open our eyes. Even, even recognizing our need is a work of your Spirit. Um, from start to finish, your Spirit is in our midst working, and we pray that that would continue. I pray that you would give us a keen sense of just wonder and awe at what you're doing so that we wouldn't be puffed up by any... You know, work or serving in any way, but we would just be pointing to Jesus all the way. We ask these things in His name. Amen.